Welcome to the IFI podcast from the Irish Film Institute. I'm Stephen Boylan, and this is the latest in our short season of IFI podcasts we're making available during the current COVID-19 outbreak. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can contact us on Facebook and Instagram at Irish Film Institute, or on Twitter at IFI underscore dub. This week on the iFi podcast, we look at the intriguing world of location management and the hugely important role it plays in the filmmaking process. Later in the show, we'll be visiting a well-known Dublin landmark which, in its time, has hosted a number of acclaimed film productions within its hallowed walls and to hear about the experience of the locations themselves. But first, Owen Houlihan is a location manager who's worked in the film industry for over 20 years. He's worked on films as diverse as Reign of Fire, Breakfast on Pluto, The Lobster and The Hole in the Ground, and alongside directors including Barry Levison, John Carney and Lenny Abrahamson. I'm delighted that Owen joins us on the podcast this week to give us an insight into this hugely important and very visible part of the filmmaking process. Owen, thanks so much for being here. Not at all, Stephen. Thanks, thanks for having me. Owen, location manager is a credit or job title that every film fan will know well, and it seems that it's a role where the creative side of filmmaking meets the logistical side of filmmaking. Would I be right in saying that? Yeah, you, you nailed it. That's it entirely, yeah. It's, it, uh, it has... It has both aspects to it. it. It starts off as a as a creative role, and then very quickly, as you move through pre production, the logistics start to take over, um, and then it, it's all about logistics. And from somebody who wouldn't be overly familiar, what what would be the main things that a, a location manager would do as part of the overall film production project? Oh God! <laughs> oh, where do you start? So, okay, so it's it's all in stages. So I'll try and run through it really briefly with you. So you would you would get a script, you'd break down the script into um, into locations, and then you, in consultation with the director, production designer, maybe director of photography, producers, uh, you start to scout suitable locations for for the film for the script. And then once you then you, you whittle it down and then you start to choose those locations. And then that's when the logistics start to create an influence. Uh, you know, like the, the, the first idea will get involved with scheduling and, you know, maybe you, you need to limit the amount of moves that you do. And there's a bit of push and pull between between that and maybe the, the look that the production designer, the DP and the director are trying to achieve. But once you settle on the locations, then you need to get all the... Um, like the insurance and the legals out of the way and contract those locations, sign location agreements, agree location fees, make sure that insurance and everything is in order. Uh, then you go back to, to per, the permit procedure. So it can be as simple as securing, you know, a house, like a private house to organizing, you know, a, a, a road, a, you know, a road chase, a car chase with an accident or something and, and all of the, you know, all the authorities you have to deal with for that from local councils to the guard, you know, police, etc. Yeah. And that's pretty much the process. And then, and then they, you know, you arrive in film. Uh, so you organize everything, you know, parking, like welfare facilities, toilets, security, ev- everything that you could think of to make yeah. sure that the crew get in. Like, like basically at the end of the day, I always think someone is going to put a camera somewhere and everything behind that camera, I've got to organize, make sure that it all runs smoothly so that the camera can go where it needs to go. That's a very simple way of looking at it. Wow. I've often heard it said that the location manager is the first person on set in the morning and the last person to leave at night. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's true. Uh, I, I've, I try and actually, uh, I'm, I'm a very big advocate for changing the ridiculous hours that, that we work in the film industry. So I'm all about having a, a, you know, a good crew with you that, so you can 
delegation also that you can carve up the hours, but certainly the locations department, not the manager, will be the first on site and the last off. And um, yeah, that's unfortunately the way it works, goes with the job. Um, it feels like a very specific role, Owen. I'm just wondering, how did you get involved in it? And how did you train for it? Was it just a case of, you know, being being interested in film, hanging around on film sets, or was there something specific that, that, that you did in relation to preparing for it? That's an interesting question. I was, was certainly interested in working in the film industry. I would have come out of college in the early 90s. Uh, I did an arts degree. Then I did like a one-year kind of foundation film course. And then, and then what happened was, a film came to shoot in my town. I'm, I'm from Kildare, from a town called Rathangan in Kildare. And I went down, uh, filmed there for a short period of time. I actually used my auntie's cake shop. But I, so I, I had already been knocking on doors. I, had, I joined a union and I, I kind of fancied myself as a sound recordist. I've no idea why. So <laughs> like, I thought I looked cool with headphones or something ridiculous like that. But I, so I got involved. I, I, I got a job and I went down basically like almost as as an intern kind of sound trainee person and then I did a couple more jobs in sound and realized that I really hadn't a clue what I was doing and that that didn't suit me and then I, I went away for a year traveling and when I came back it had just kind of kicked off there was a bit of a boom going on and Angela's Ashes were short of crew so I got a job at Angela's Ashes as an assistant director a trainee AD the way a lot a lot of people come into the industry and then I met the location manager in that job and she suggested that I do a locations job with her so I did her next job doing locations which I think was salt water actually Connor McPherson film so there's a connection there between that and I went down and then uh, I realized I really liked locations because it, it, it had that mix of a creative side to it and then and then logistics and and just lots of it's a busy job I like being busy and there's lots of communication in it and it, like you're pretty much dealing with all departments all the time, lots of people management from dealing with members of the public to the crew themselves. So th- literally that's how I, I felt, I kind of, I, I wouldn't say I fell into it. I was actively trying to get into the industry and I was lucky enough that, you know, the circus rolled into town while yeah. I was there. Yeah. You mentioned there having contacts with the with the director and the production designer and uh, the DP. And I just wonder, at what point do you join the project? And when you do join the project, is the is the production designer your first point of contact or would it be the director? What is that first conversation you would have in relation to picking out the locations? You'd be surprised. Quite often, I would be on a project before there's even a director. So, you know, sometimes a producer might approach me and go, look, you know, we have this we have this film. There may not be a director attached to it at that time, or the director may be busy with something else, but they may just say, look, you know, could you go out, could you do a couple of weeks work on it, break it down, do some scouting and see, is this something that could be made, you know, close to Dublin? That's, that's kind of what everyone is trying to do is make it close to the kind of production hub where all mm-hmm. the crew and stuff are. So what, let's say it's green lit and they go, okay, we're, we're up, we're up and running. It would probably be director, first very quickly followed by production designer and to be honest like quite often the director might even defer you straight to the production designer because they might have spoken to the production designer and agreed a look so they might just say look can you talk to the designer and then come back to me when you have stuff Mm. so you would engage with the production designer very early on uh, and they they would kind of provide the guidance of what you are like the look that you're scouting for but you know look quite often they may have a look in mind but 
it may not be very easy to find that. And that's where, you know, the production designer would say, look, if you get if you get this kind of geography for me, I'll be able to bring the look or I can bring all those elements in the art direction. Because I, I was curious about that in relation to how strict the brief can be in relation to if it, if a director has a certain type of room in mind, is that oftentimes that's the, that's the kind of room we need? Or is it something that, well, if you get something similar to that, the production designer can kind of work around it? Yeah, I, I think it's, you know, acknowledged by everyone that if you get a, um, if you get something similar to that, the production designer will work around it. And also, it, it completely depends on the director, like if, if they wrote the script or not. Like, you know, sometimes they will have a very, very clear vision of what they want. And it's always a good thing. But sometimes it can be it can be a problem as well, because, you know, if, if, if they're very fixated on a particular look and you can't find that, like at the end of the day, if, if it's a film that's going to be made in location, it's going to have to happen on location. So mm. sometimes you might have to change your expectations mm. or compromise a little bit. And that's something I, th- I think, you know, if, if you're working with a director who's got lots of stuff under their belt, they get that, you know, so they understand that we may have to change things as per the location we end up at. And my designer or their designer will bring in the elements that they want. Whereas maybe, you know, a director who's just starting out may not may, may not see the bigger picture sometimes like that. And it, it can be tricky sometimes kind of navigate your way, <laughs> kind of explain like that, you know, amazing Eastern block style location that you're looking for. We're not going to find it with the budget of one and a half million shooting in Dublin. So <laughs> it's those kind of kind of things. But like, to, to, to be honest, I would have a very close relationship with the designer. And, yeah. you know, what, what you're always trying to do is make sure that the director uh, trusts you both of you and has confidence in you that they'll just kind of let you do your job and that they'll get the result that they want just listening to your you're on talking about you know engaging with you know obviously the crew and then members of the public talking to like directors or writers about compromising in relation to what they might be looking for it strikes me that it's a role that requires a lot of diplomacy on lots of diplomacy honestly i didn't realize that when i when i got into it but it's um location managers would make great politicians i'm actually it's all about a a lot of it is about how you uh, engage with people and how you manage people and there's no easy way to learn like you literally learn that on the job you know and and obviously you know there's a very there's a hierarchy in the film industry as well and you know you learn early on how, how to deal with that and how to speak to directors of photography production designers directors and you know there's egos at play there as well yeah and so you've got to be conscious of that and you know what and dealing with those guys is actually no different to dealing with the difficult person in the local authority or the difficult person on the street who doesn't Mm -hmm. want you filming there it's all it's it's all the same you're just (laughs) trying to talk people around to your way of uh, thinking and when, I suppose that when you're working to budget and every single second that you're on the street or every single second you're on location is costing you money, there is that momentum or there's that impetus to make sure that everything is getting covered off as quickly as you can and, and getting it done no matter what. No, you're absolutely right. And that's 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 something about the film industry that people that are in it or maybe dip their toe in it will observe immediately. That, that everything is has, has to be done yesterday. Uh, you know, there's, not, there's never enough time and there's never enough money. And it, and it it doesn't matter how much time or money you have for a project. There just there just isn't enough. It's just the nature of the business, and you're always trying to pull stuff together um, that can seem, you know, almost impossible or, or, or kind of ridiculous. And it can be really frustrating when people keep throwing obstacles in your way, whether it is 
you know, members of the public or local authorities or members of your own crew. And you really just have to stay focused, keep the head down and and just get it done. Like we're, we're quite, it's again, it's something I know I've, I've observed. You, you get used to it, but a, you know, a local authority or a location owner, someone would kind of go, you know, look, I've answered this and I've said, no, like, why do you keep persisting? And I, and I, well, because like it has to be a yes, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like I won't stop till I get yes. And, and uh, you know, and sometimes you have to stop. And actually, that's and that is probably the the worst part of the job is we you, we are so used to finding a way to solve a problem. Like yeah. we really are. Like we we literally will always find you'll always find a way. So when you're scuppered and and you just can't get around that obstacle or you've just run out of time and the answer is no. That I find that really hard to take actually. And as I get older and know more about the job, I know that there is always a way. So it all it really irritates me when we just literally run out of time and I have to just accept that it's not going to happen. It's, happen. It's, it's rare, but when it happens, I'm annoyed. So I think I think the message from this interview is if you come up against Owen Houlihan, that re- resistance is futile. <laughs> resistance is futile. Yeah. yeah, God, that sounds terrible. But yeah, I mean, it's it's. Uh, but look, th- that's across the board in the industry. Like e- every department would be the same. You you, you kind of you, you you focus on what you need to achieve for that scene or that goal or my you know or that location, and you just go and you do it. Like it's um, everyone has the same attitude, which you know, like like film sets are incredible places to work, or the film industry is. An incredible place to work because it's it is so fast moving it's full of can do people and it's and it is kind of it's interesting the way it attracts those people into it i kind of think how does it find these people because they really are the kind of people that sit in a room you know and a director says i want to fly a helicopter up O'Connell street and i want a double decker bus to explode and i want um you know whatever clearies to collapse and all of those people just nod their head you know and nobody freaks out uh <laughs> where do we find these people but anyway that so the film industry is made up of those kind of personalities yeah um, and put a pe- bunch of people like that together and get them to work together you get a film you, you've spoken there about obstacles and challenges and i'm just wondering what's the most challenging project that you've worked on so far insofar as maybe it could be complexity or scope what what was the one that kind of that, that sticks out in your head as being particularly difficult oh god, <laughs> god. they're all uh like my team my my, uh, my department would go, they're all a bloody nightmare. Actually, well, here's one that you probably haven't even heard of, but it was really, really challenging. Um, and it was a TV show that came in to Dublin with about, I don't know, three weeks to prep it. It, it, was, a, it was an ABC American cop show called Quantico. They, they did one episode, maybe two episodes here. And it was just, you know, we want to be in Trinity College, Christchurch Cathedral, Glendalock. We want to do an explosion in a block of flats. We want, it was just an endless list of we want, we want, we want. Mm-hmm. And, and, and they literally, you know, arrived and went, where are we going to make it? You know, like, so I was kind of reading it in the car with them going, oh, God, help me. So <laughs> that, like, that was, that, that was really, that was absolute skin of our teeth. Like, that was literally, you know, like signing off. On, on Trinity College, like the night before and enrolling in the next day. Wow. Um, and, and that was one of those jobs where you were literally pulling every contact out of your book or your phone and ringing them and going, this is going to sound insane, but, you know, we want to parachute five FBI agents into Glendalock <laughs> after next, you know. And, <laughs> and we're outside now. <laughs> and and, uh, and, and uh, I'm here right now. Is there anyone around? Is, it was that sort of, it was ridiculous. So yeah, so that that was really challenging. But then, you know, 
kind of utterly forgettable as well. Like I've, I've almost completely forgotten the job. I just remembering now we've got into pool bag, ESB, like that's just a health and safety nightmare. That was all pulled together and you know, in a very, uh, very short and quick time. And I'd say uh, like a recent one would have been normal people uh, mm-hmm. in Trinity College because we got huge access everywhere. But that, that was challenging and scheduling, very difficult to try. And because that, you know, that was made in the summer and Trinity was hectic with tourists and we needed, you know, lots of the public spaces to be empty. And so that, that's another one that I suppose for what you see on screen, people probably don't realize the amount of work that went in to that behind yeah. the scenes to get into all of those buildings without you know without kind of interfering with the everyday life of trinity college yeah um, and actually they have to be commended for for working with me and that they completely trusted me and the results are good actually what an amazing show and i suppose the pressure there for you as well is that because the novel itself is set in trinity it's not like people who are fans of the book will want to watch the tv and go hang on that's ucd yeah no and, and that and it was a key it was, it was a key part of my job like very early on way before pre-production i engaged with trinity and explained what we were doing that um you know that lenny was attached element we're making it with bbc um, and that we needed to know kind of now if 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 trinity would be on board and that was probably i think we made it in 2019 so i think near the end of 2018 we made it in the summer of 2019 mm-hmm. so i think like december 2018 i approached trinity and and you know, to be honest, look, Stephen, I think that we would have would have made that show anyway. But it was really, really important that we get Trinity, and and I suppose nobody could think what would happen if we didn't. So, so that pressure was um, that was like quite intense, actually. You know, because we were asking a lot. But anyway, look, they they came on board quite early and, and said, you know, they would you know commit as much as they could, and uh, you know, early engagement was essential, and that's what we did, and it worked out great. And, Trinity looks fantastic and everyone's happy. Sure does. Um, I want to talk to you about one project in particular, which I'm a huge fan of, and that's Yorgos Lanthimos's The Lobster. Oh, Um, yes. Just because it's a a film that has a very unique tone to it um, and obviously has a very unique look. And as somebody who grew up in Blanchardstown, seeing Rachel Weisz walking around Mr. Price in the Blanchardstown (laughs) Shopping Centre was was a real mouth on the floor moment. So tell us a little bit about working on that project, about Lanthimos and what he and what the team came to you and said, this is what we're looking for. Yeah, that was really, it was a really interesting film. So I had seen Dogtooth when I got the script for The Lobster. And I, I, like, I, I kind of still stand by this, and apologies to all the other writers and directors I've worked with, but it's probably the best script I've ever read. Like I just read it and was kind of stunned. And it was really short, like the first draft that I got, which probably would, wouldn't have been the first draft, but the draft that I got initially, I think it was only like, you know, less than 70 pages or something. And I actually thought that it was like a, an old Greek fable or there was just something about it. I was like, this, did this come out of your head? <laughs> and he was like, yeah, it did, yeah. So, uh, and it's himself and his writing partner, whose name escapes me now, I'm embarrassed. Um, Ephthymius, I think, was his name. So Element had that. And so, so basically, and actually this is the classic example of the initial brief I got was these very monolithic uh, Eastern Bloc countries or East, mm-hmm. Eastern Bloc buildings. You know, we don't have that style of architect, of architecture. They want something that's quite brutal. Uh, and and so, so look, so I was, it was just like, look, okay, we don't have that, but let's think outside the box. And actually at the time, I wasn't, I was on another project and I wasn't available to do the initial scout. So a colleague of mine, Dermot Cleary, another location manager, 
did the initial scout of just checking out all the there's a whole kind of variety of hotels around Ireland and and, the, and we were initially going to make it in the winter time anyway we, it, Jorgis then came around to the idea of maybe it's a castle or it's an older style building because he, he was the other part of it was look the city it just needs to look kind of modern but it could be anywhere it's faceless the, you know the, the people are like are like ants. I remember him saying that to me actually once. People are like ants. And I was like, that's exactly how he treats his characters. They're just like yeah. these kind of like like ants or sentient beings kind of running around. Anyway, so look, he, he whittled it down to, to a few different hotels. And and they they like I think one was a castle, one was Parton Silla where we made it. And I can't remember what the third one was. And then what drew him to Parton Silla was kind of the natural landscape around it. He just felt that there was something kind of edge of the world about it. Just a little, he, he felt that you could look at the hotel and see it as this lovely five-star retreat, or you could shoot it and look at it and go, there's something ominous about this. Is it prison-like? What's going on? So so that's what kind of drew him to it, and Park and Silla were up for it, and then we ended up, the film got pushed, so believe it or not, we shot while it was open. It was like a logistical nightmare, <laughs> but, but also kind of hilarious, because you'd be filming, you know, in the lobby with... Rachel Vice and or actually no, she was out in the woods. So, but you know, you'd have Colin Farrell and John C. Riley, um, you know, and the guests would kind of be like, "What well, is that? Who's that?" You know, that looks like Colin Farrell. Exactly. There was a lot of that going on. Very funny. And then like Daniel Craig came down to visit because obviously he's he's Rachel Vice's partner. So so that was really bizarre. So James Bond was hanging out down there a lot for a couple of weeks actually, and nobody even knew. Um, so it was um, it's a very organic process to work on with Yorgos and I think what was interesting for me was I, I loved the script I thought it was amazing I, I thought that you know I knew he was a visionary director and I loved the way I loved the cast that he had attracted to it I just thought like this is incredible because this is a low budget film and what was really fascinating about it was your, it was Yorgos's first time to kind of do a, a, a film with like a full crew on it uh, just in conversation with him kind of emerged that up until then he'd really made films with a close kind of knit bunch of friends in Athens, like in Greece. Mm-hmm. And now he was kind of opening it up a bit. So he found, like, I just remember like the endless conversations where, you know, we'd go and wreck a location and I would be asking, is it okay to have the trucks there? You know, because we're going to have a camel and the camel's going to come in a truck. So, we, <laughs> you know, and he would just be like, why do you keep asking me about this? Like, because it's, we have to, like, I need to know, why do we have so many trucks? And uh, why do you keep asking about Colin's trailer? I'd be like, well, you know, Colin Farrell isn't going to just hang out in yeah. a tent all day. <laughs> like, he's, his trailer is going to have to be here somewhere close by. So, he and he was kind of like, kind of flummoxed by it. Like, really? Like, is this important? And so I, so it was really, I found it really fascinating to watch him understand the, like the mechanics of making a film. Because I think up until then, he, they, they just made their movies, yeah. you know, uh, and now suddenly he was having to engage with the structure of filmmaking. But sure, look, it was no problem to him. Like, look, look at what he made and and, and look what he's made since. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was, it was great. And I, it, there was really creative freedom in that as well. Like just just stuff like they're very open to, to things about like the city. And, you know, I showed them that that junction out in Blanchestown, you know, the, the Blanchestown exit where you get to train the canal and the, the motorway and you know he's like oh that's amazing let's just get them to walk in there as if they're you know walking into the city yeah Blanch- Blanchard's town shopping center just it was all like let's just have normal spaces 
Yeah. So yeah, so I really, I, to be honest, I really enjoyed working on it. it. Was it was just it was kind of uh, I knew that we were making something really cool. And what's fascinating with the lobster as well is that it, it kind of takes those buildings out of context because I, I I remember like you have that scene in Ranch Town's shopping center, but I think there's a scene straight after where it cuts and it's at the back of the board gosh energy and it looks like this kind of very desolate landscape and it just goes show you know when you when you take those buildings in isolation you can you can create a completely different atmosphere with them you would never think of Blanchetown Centre as this kind of very futuristic thing but when you shoot it kind of upwards to that big glass ceiling that's exactly what you get that's it and and that's entirely it and when you work with Jorgas it's it's all about the framing so so like he would look at location photographs obviously and with his designer and stuff and they would go yeah okay yeah but let's go and see it and and then, like, what's amazing about him is, like, I would never know where they're going to put the camera. Yeah. Like, you just don't know. So, like, even with Colin's bedroom in Park Nasilla, we picked the smallest bedroom, I'm not joking you, to film his scenes in. And we must have been in that room for two or three days. Um, <laughs> it's like, oh, my God, you can't even put the camera back far enough. Like, how are you going to see the maid's head when she comes in? And York has to be, why do I want to see her head? So I'm like, well, I don't know. She speaks. I thought it'd be important, but, but that's, <laughs> that's the way, you know. So actually, when you watch the film, she walks in, yeah. and her head is out of shot. Amazing. And Colin is just sitting on the bed, looking up. You know, her. I think. I think. I'd have to look at it again. I think it's framed on her chin or something. So he has a very particular way of looking at the world, and uh, exactly what you said. Like you take like everything is out of context, and he loved that. That's Laser Lane. When you look back. It's a very strange part down there of the of the Docklands, down around Grand Canal. You've got the you've got like the Facebook building is on the right. You've got this weird palm tree garden, red brick chimney, whatever I don't know on the left. Yeah. And then at the at the end of your road is the side of the Borgosh building, which is um kind of an aluminium clad kind of silver, whatever. And then right beside that is the Marker Hotel, which is like a checkerboard, and it's just that combination. Of you know all like it's, it's a bit of an assault on the census those buildings and it's just like static shot people walking towards us nobody else in the frame and yeah you're right, you come straight out of Blanche into that out of the Blanche Centre into that and you you don't it's just yeah it's off kilter it's a strange world but you completely accept it you just go oh yeah okay that's right here that works um just just a quick question because obviously there's a a scene in the lobster and i, w- I won't say too much of it because it kind of it's it's kind of the the final scene of the film and um, where they're in where they're in joelle's um the restaurant they're just off the long mile road and i just wonder because something very strange happens and it's a little bit disturbing when you get onto location has there anybody ever said oh so what's 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 happening in this part of the film and they've gone oh hang on a second yeah, yeah, no, that that happens all the time, and in a location agreement, when you sign it, it, it actually says, and there's there's a couple of lines in it that that basically say that you know you know the nature of the scenes to be filmed, and and sometimes that's really easy to explain, and mm-hmm. sometimes <laughs> you know, sometimes it is absolutely impossible. Yeah, the 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 thing about Joel's was we didn't film the bathroom scene there. Yeah, uh, that bathroom scene is filmed in Shelburne Dog Track, the Greyhound Track. Oh wow! Yeah, and actually, I I could go onto my computer right now and pull up a hundred different bathrooms for that scene. That I, that was actually probably the trickiest location, and I understand why. Like he was very fixated on it because obviously it's a key moment. So we spent so the one in Joel's didn't work, and I just had it in my head like, oh, this will be really easy to find. Oh God! So we ended up shooting it in the dog track because I think our unit base was there. Like all our vehicles were parked there when we were shooting Grand Canal Square. 
and they have a selection of bathrooms. I think I just brought your orchestra in. I was like, please just pick a bathroom. <laughs> I can't do this anymore. And and we picked we picked a bathroom. But yeah, like in, in Joel's, I think like I explained what we were doing. <laughs> and yeah, and I think they were just like I think I think all they really saw, to be honest, was Colin Farrell is going to be here. I think that was really yeah. that that was it. And again, Joel's like, you know, like that 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 brief, like the brief was, you know, locations in Dublin. But but when you put them all together, you it's it's strange, and you know anyone outside of Dublin just won't really know where you are. Like a mix of architecture, styles, references. So like you know, Joel's is a bit mad, no doubt about it. And, and there was a you know a building site outside the door, outside the window. And normally I'd move that, like I'd, I'd engage with them and see could they move the machines. Or and Yorgos was like, no, I love it. Um, and the amount of people have said to me. Oh God! Did today just turn up on the day? That must have been a nightmare. <laughs> I was like, no. <laughs> we wanted more machines, more like, yeah. So like, the, if it's a little bit strange, m- like more, please. Basically, that's what that was like. Yeah. And we've, we've we've you've mentioned a lot, kind of going through this around you know architecture and art. Is there if, if somebody was looking to get into location management or thought it was something that was going to interest them? Are there certain interests that are useful to people in relation to? when you're going looking at locations, that's something that is striking or certain styles that you would need to know about. Is, is, is the knowledge of art and architecture useful? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, certainly I'm really, really into architecture and really interested in it. And I'm really interested in photography. So I think like cer- certainly that helps me. And I, you know, I'd be quite into my history as well. I did a bit of Greek and Roman history when I was in college and, and just history in in general, like just, you know, like the, the different the different architecture uh, that goes with the different eras. Yeah, I think I think it's useful. I mean, I I don't know that every location manager would have those interests, mm-hmm. but you know, and they're definitely of no use to you if you're working on sci-fi. But um, you know, I yeah, I, I would I would say it's a definite advantage, and, and just having a, you need to have an eye. I I think you know, look, look at a street and kind of know what is good about it, like yeah. why why you would why you would pick that street over another street. Because um, quite often that, that's all the scene is, they're walking down the street. And and it can be really, you know, and it'll be a scheduling thing. And, you know, we need it to be easy. We need it to be this and that. But at the end of the day, it also needs to be visually arresting or visually interesting for the director or DP or designer. So I, I think, yeah, a knowledge of architecture, art, photography, but you do you do need to have an, an eye, some sort of an eye to appreciate, you know, or to under, understand an, an aesthetic that, that a director is is chasing or is trying to achieve, you need to be able to to translate that uh, into scouting. You mentioned that you've been busy. What are you working on at the moment? I'm working on a film called The Silence of Mercy, and it's being shot at the moment. We're based out of Armore Studios, so there's there's a lot of stage work, and then we go out on location the week after next to yeah to various locations, kind of around Dublin, Wicklow, Mead. So that's keeping me very much on my toes, especially with COVID um, and, and all of everything that that brings. Um, but yeah, I'm keeping busy with that at the moment. Well, it's been, uh, it's been fascinating talking to you. If you'd like to see some of Owen's excellent location management, John Kearney's Sing Street and Magazata Zamovska's The Other Lamb are currently available to rent now on ifihome.ie. Owen, thank you so much for your time. Thanks. Thanks for the chat. Cheers.
One of Dublin's most iconic and beloved buildings is Kilmainham Jail, a former prison that has been the location of some of the most pivotal events in Irish history and has also housed a number of iconic film productions. Brian Crowley, the jail's curator of collections, joins me now to chat about the various films that have used the jail as a backdrop down the years. Brian, welcome to the iFi podcast. Hello, Stephen. It's great to be here. What is it about the building, do you think, that makes it such an attractive place to film? Well, I suppose the unique selling point about Kilmainham Jail is the fact that it's a very large but empty prison. Um, and obviously, working prisons would be a very difficult place to try and uh, carry out any kind of film uh, production. But I think the other thing over the years is I think filmmakers have found that it's quite a flexible space. So while Kilmainham Jail is often used to in, in films where it's, it's supposed to be a, a prison, it's also been all kinds of things from a a French laundry to uh, a dungeon to the scene of a the, the burning of a heretic in the 17th century. So I think from that point of view, it has a lot to offer um, filmmakers. Um, we were speaking to Owen Houlihan earlier on on the show, uh, location manager. And in your experience and from a museum and heritage point of view, what are the main things for you to consider when a production arrives on site? Well, I suppose I should mention, first of all, that I don't deal with that side of things in Cremainham Jail. Um, but in the past, I would have had a lot of dealings with uh, film crews. And I suppose, you know, there's the obvious things like, you know, insurance, risk assessments and and that kind of thing and the, kind of the logistics. But in terms of our priorities, obviously, it's it's always to protect the building and also, I suppose, to minimise the disruption to visitors. Over the years, one of the things I kind of worked out was that when film shoots go well it's because we recognize what our priorities are and also recognize that the priority of the filmmakers is to make a good film and once we're aware of these different priorities and respect them um things tend to uh, run a lot uh, more smoothly but as i said like i suppose your main thing when a film crew arrive is you're always thinking about the building and making sure that nothing happens to it and in terms of Kilmainham now one of the big issues is the fact that obviously film shoots can be very disruptive and uh, you need to minimise that as much as possible uh, which is very difficult when you're as busy as Kilmainham Jail is in terms of visitors. We're going to talk about some of the films that have been made in Kilmainham Jail or filmed in Kilmainham Jail down the years and I want to start obviously one of the most iconic parts of the building Brian is the jail's east wing which has that famous long corridor with um, the the steel steps and, and the jail cells all around the sides. The East Wing features very prominently in the 1962 film The Queer Fellow. Um, so this was filmed just after the jail reopened. Well, actually, it's before it's, uh, it opens as a, as a museum. So the Clemenum Jail Restoration Society is founded in 1960. And in 1961, they're approached by a film company who want to do a film adaptation of The, the Queer Fellow. And at that stage, Clemenum Jail is essentially kind of half ruinous. So it's a big deal um, at the time. There's... From the Kilmainham Jail Restoration Society, there's a chance to make a substantial amount of money. And it also, I think, probably is something of an impetus in terms of the film company need a degree of work to be carried out on the building so that it's ready for filming. So there's things like, you know, they're literally pulling trees up by the roots in one of the yards. And when it's all done, obviously... From the Restoration Society's point of view, not only do they get a fee, but uh, rather than hire in a building company to prepare the building, uh, the volunteers who are working on the restoration agree to essentially work for the uh, the film company. And that money also goes into the, the restoration. But I think they're also very conscious that this is a new project and they're trying to, I suppose, promote it to the, the public. And this is a very public way of not only showing people the building, but... Um, 
showing i suppose the potential of the building not only as as a museum but as something that will be of benefit to the artistic and economic life of the of the city as well and uh, they're, they're definitely at the end of that period they're very kind of proud of how the jail looks in this film and it's a great showcase uh, for Kilmainham Jail. I know I mentioned the East Wing um, in the introduction to to the Queer Fellow but actually there's a lot of different locations in Kilmainham Jail that feature in the film you have the the outside yard where the, the prisoners go exercising so it's not just that iconic wing they actually use a, a large amount of the jail yeah, yeah, no, the, as I said, the, they used two of the yards, uh, at least, uh, and the East Wing. And I suppose what's, what's not shown is the older West Wing, which at that time is still in a very precarious state. But, uh, as I said, in the film, like it, it works quite seamlessly. Um, there's kind of external shots of the, of Mount Joy, which is where the queer fella is essentially set. Uh, and then you go, the interiors are, they're, all uh, Kilmainham. As I said, it's it's really interesting just to see that the jail as well at that stage in in its development. As I said, it's literally just a year into this big project, um, and I think uh, it's a great. There's a great sense of achievement in terms of how the Restoration Society recorded in their archives. It's a the Queer Fellow. It's, it's a very somber film. But about seven or eight years later, another film came to fill, film in the jail, which was an altogether more uh, light hearted. Uh, John, and that was uh, the very famous The Italian Job. Tell us a little bit about uh, The Italian Job in Kilmainham Jail. I think the success of The Queer Fella gives confidence to the, the Restoration Society in terms of dealing with film. And, and there's a, you know, a good few films in the 1960s and 70s that they deal with. But The Italian Job is one of the big kind of Hollywood films that um, come to to the jail. And I think today it's it's one of the films that people really remember, probably because they really the filmmakers really take advantage of the dramatic space in the in the East Wing. Um and those opening shots of, of Michael Caine. You see Michael Caine walking along the um gangways of the East Wing, but when he leaves then the exterior is done done in um uh, I think it's Wormwood Scrubs uh, provides the exterior. Apparently there were two reasons they decided to film in Kilmainham. Uh, one was obviously the fact that it was a big empty Victorian jail, but also um, Noel Coward's scenes uh, were all in the jail and apparently he was a tax exile at the time and he couldn't uh, return to Britain um, because of his tax status. And then uh, I suppose very significantly as well, it turns out to be his last film role. So it has kind of a very special place in terms of his uh, filmography. Uh, there's a lot of films, a lot of other films uh, filmed in Kilmainham Jail uh, in the 1970s, but I want to fast forward into the 80s, Brian, and uh, talk about Anne Devlin, uh, which was filmed in an older part of the jail. And I suppose what's interesting about this is that the, it was filmed in Kilmainham Jail, but the events in the film actually happened in Kilmainham Jail. Yeah, and you know, it's it's actually unusual enough to have Kilmainham Jail featuring as itself in, in certainly in kind of feature films. Um, Anne Devlin, obviously, it's a hugely important film in the history of of Irish film, and Pat Murphy does this amazing, sensitive job in telling the story of a figure that's often kind of overlooked, and also giving kind of a, a woman's perspective on these kind of great Irish historic events. And, and I suppose Kilmainham has the advantage that. While the East Wing is very much a Victorian prison and, and there's a very kind of distinct look to those Victorian prisons, the original jail dates from the 1790s uh, and it's very different. There's lots of kind of uh, narrow corridors. And when you're watching the film, you're also thinking of the fact that Anne Devlin may literally have walked along those uh, corridors that Bree Brennan playing that role is doing. And I suppose the other thing about Pat Murphy's film is what 
one of the things I think is so wonderful about it is there's there's an authenticity about it. And it's not that kind of nerdy, pedantic, you know, she has exactly the right waist for that particular year or there's the right amount of buttons on that man's uh, waistcoat. I think what she does is she avoids that tendency sometimes with period drama to make them lush and create this kind of fantasy of the past. When you're looking at Anne Devlin, you're really, you know, following her in her everyday life. So when she has to walk or travel on a horse and cart along the roads in Wicklow, you see exactly how long that takes, you know, when she's carrying water and whatever, it's 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 done in a, in a very real way. And then I suppose you have that extra authenticity then of her being in Kilmainham jail and this story kind of returning to the jail. Though interestingly, the when I saw the film, I, I only saw it for the first time, not two years ago in the in the IFI. And when I saw it, I realised that actually the the scenes in the cells were, I think they were filmed down in Strokestown. But the, as I said, those other, those other parts that are filmed in Kilmainham, there is, you know, this extra power to them. Just as a matter of interest, Brian, obviously people would often associate Kilmainham Jail with the leaders of the 1916 Rising and the events around that time. Was Kilmainham Jail always a kind of mixed-sexed prison or, or how did that work? Um, so Kilmainham opened as the county jail for Dublin, so it would have had men and women um, in the building together. But one of the big innovations about the jail was they were very strict or tried to be very strict about the separation of men and women. And it remained a mixed prison up until 1881. Uh, and after that, it became uh, a male only prison. And then obviously after it, it closes as a as a a criminal prison in 1910 and then reopens after the 1916 rising and has a kind of a life as a political prison then during the war of independence and civil war and at various points like in, in 1916 there's men and women there and again in the civil war for a time it becomes a women women only prison so it really depends on what particular period you're talking about mm. there's also a political aspect to um, the next film that was filmed in the jail albeit a very modern one and um, we're going to go to the early 1990s and an irish film that received seven oscar nominations and that not only used the interior of the jail but the exteriors also and that was in the name of the father brian was this one of the biggest productions that you've had in Kamenham jail Oh, by far, by far, this was a huge production. So uh, essentially the film kind of took over the building for a number of months and it was like the main location for for that film. And, you know, we, luckily enough, one of the things that we have in our collection is a model that they made at the time of the East Wing showing the additions that they were going, that they made. So, you know, there's a, a, a whole extra gangway bridge across the East Wing. Um, they divided it kind of in two thirds was, became one part. Sorry. They, well, they divided it in, in, in two. Um, and there's kind of a third of the East Wing then becomes a very separate part, uh, a separate location. Um, in this kind of, I suppose, imagined prison that the, the Conlans were kept in. So that was, as I said, that was really the, the biggest film. And I couldn't ever see maybe anything of that scale happening again, simply because the museum is so popular now. There's, there's so many, you know, members of the public wanting to visit. And at the time, and, and still really, people really identified the jail with the film. So we'd have lots of visitors from, particularly from, uh, kind of continental Europe, from Spain and Italy in particular. Um, they'd kind of arrive in and they'd immediately recognise it as the location of In the Name of the Father. Mm. You were mentioning to me that there was some trickery in relation to that very beautiful scene where the prisoners light pieces of paper or or cloth and, and dangle them out the windows. That was actually only one side of the jail, that 
they they doubled that in post production. Yeah, so uh, you you can very clearly see it's the kind of the curved section of the outside of the the east wing of Kilmainham. But I suppose in terms of the kind of visual presentation, they do this. I suppose camera trick where uh, it looks like there's two buildings together but again it's very identifiable still as Kilmainham Jail and again it's a part of the building that people do recognise from the film Another hugely important Irish production Brian from the 1990s was Neil Jordan's Michael Collins uh, which was also filmed in Kilmainham but I suppose what's most striking about this is that they recorded or they filmed the executions of the 1916 leaders in the actual locations where those executions took place yeah, I remember um, I started in Kermainham just after this film was made. And I remember some of my colleagues talking about when they saw these executions taking place, just the impact that that, that it had. Uh, and it's it's really interesting because I suppose that story is told in that space numerous times a day. And yet to see it being recreated, you know, had an, uh, a huge impact. And, and like Kilmainham is, a, is, a, is a, again, a very important location. There's an image of Michael Collins, uh, supposedly in an English prison. And then I suppose the flexibility of the, the building, because essentially there's kind of three different sections of the jail, which were built at different times. The, another part of the jail then served as uh, Lincoln Prison. And when you see De Valera escaping from Lincoln, he's actually ex- escaping from uh, Kilmainham Jail, Alan Rickman has been bundled out uh, of the side of, of, the, of the prison. And again, that was, I suppose, really important in terms of the museum supporting not just the Irish film industry, but also what was considered a very important uh, film in terms of the popular understanding of Irish history. The last film on our list, Brian, um, is much more recent. It's from 2017. It wasn't actually filmed in the jail. But the prison scenes of it, well, well, the prison, let's just say, looks very familiar. What, what's the film? Uh, it's uh, Paddington 2. I remember the when I went to see Paddington 2, um, poor Paddington ends up, he's a, a victim of a miscarriage of justice and, and finds himself in, in, in prison. And they create this kind of prison confection almost. It's this beautiful kind of pink prison. And I was looking at it and Victorian prisons, there's, there's a, a huge amount of uniformity to them. But there is something very distinctive about the East Wing of Kilmainham Jail. Uh, which interestingly was designed by a guy called uh, John McCurdy, who also uh, was responsible for the facade of the Shelburne Hotel. But it is a very distinctive and a very dramatic space. And, you know, I often think it'd be really interesting if you could kind of do a super cut of all the dramatic scenes of people walking down the central stairs. And anyway, we followed um, Paddington into prison and I went, that's the East Wing of Kilmainham Jail. Um, so I think probably what happened was they were kind of inspired by it. And I think there's a, a degree of kind of CGI. But it's kind of interesting to see that Kilmainham Jail has become this kind of not only iconic historic site, but in some ways kind of a historic, an iconic image of a prison. And uh, even though it didn't physically happen in, in the jail, I have to say that I think the scene of uh, Hugh Grant dancing down this, the central stairs of the prison hall um, will you know, join some of the great images of uh, Kilmainham in the future. Well, if you're looking to enjoy some views of Kilmainham Jail down through the years, Paddington 2, Michael Collins and In the Name of the Father are all available to rent from iTunes, Google, Amazon and Sky, with The Italian Job also available to rent from Google and Amazon. Brian Crowley, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. That's all from this week's iFi podcast. We'll be back next week. I hope you'll join us then. The iFi Podcast is produced by the Irish Film Institute. The Irish Film Institute is principally funded by the Arts Council. 
The IFI is a charity. For more information on how to support its work, visit ifi.ie forward slash support.